0: Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown podcast has all of that and it's Chicago based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jen White and this is The Morning Shift. Uber, to use another U-word, is ubiquitous. The company operates in roughly 70 countries, and it's not just for hailing a ride anymore. There's Uber Eats, its food delivery division, the Advanced Technologies Group, which is building self-driving cars, and Uber Freight, an effort to disrupt the trucking industry. Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced yesterday that that last division, Uber Freight, will now be headquartered in Chicago's Old Main Post Office on West Van Buren Street. And the company has pledged to bring 2,000 jobs to the site over three years. We have been working very hard um, over the last few years and we will continue to do so to make sure that the entire nation understands that Chicago is in fact a tier one tech center. Uber also says it's going to invest $200 million a year into Uber Freight in Chicago, but it comes on the heels of news about the company that raised some eyebrows. Uber stock sank this morning after the ride-sharing company posted a $5.2 billion quarterly loss.
1: $5 billion in three months. The company is reporting its largest loss ever and its slowest quarter for revenue growth ever. The
0: $5.2 billion loss was just a month ago. So is this a company in crisis or one poised for success? Joining me now is Mike Isaac, technology reporter for The New York Times and author of the new book out last week titled Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. Mike, welcome to The Morning Shift. Hey, thanks for having me. So help us understand, how is it that last month Uber loses $5.2 billion, which for comparison is about half the size of the city of Chicago's annual budget. And (laughs) then this week, Uber is all smiles, you know, announcing it's rolling out a big time expansion in our city. (laughs)
1: it's it's totally counterintuitive and this company it's funny this company has never in its history over the past 10 years been really a profitable company except for you know some balance sheet trickery but essentially what they're doing is they have to show investors on wall street that they're able to grow over time because 10 years ago ride hailing was sort of a new advent but now we're in this period where uh you you know ride hailing is pretty much taken over most of the major cities you can find it in countries across the world and so Uber needs to show look we we are more than just a ride hailing commoditized service we can offer other things like food delivery or you know bikes and scooters or in in this case trucking and freight management and so uh, they're expanding rapidly into these other areas, but as you can see, as we saw in their earnings report the other week, that's costing them quite a bit of cash upfront for them to invest in their future business.
0: How sustainable is the type of growth you're describing? And do you think Chicago has anything to worry about in locking Uber in as a? I mean, it's a ten-year tenant on this massive space.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a good question because right now they're in this period where Wall Street is not loving the continuous negative quarterly earnings reports and this idea that um, this idea is taking hold that can Uber ever be profitable. Is this a company that can actually make money uh, or is it just burning cash a lot? And so what we have to watch is how dedicated to the, they are to these future lines of business, you know? Are they gonna keep burning money on their food delivery business? Are they gonna stick with Uber Freight uh, for the long haul? So far, they've indicated, look, you just need to give us some space. You need to let us sort of prove out our thesis that we are what they like to say, the Amazon of transportation, and we'll do that. So there's no indication right now that they're going to stop anytime soon. But, you know, we have to keep an eye on it.
0: I want you to explain the company's financial situation a bit more because you said they need to show to investors Um, the fact that they can grow. But I would assume those investors also want to see that they can be profitable. Uh, (laughs) The company just went public on the New York Stock Exchange earlier this year. It's valued at around $55 billion. Help us understand on the range of, you know, from failure to successful, where does this company fall right now?
1: Here's the sort of issue. I would say 10 years ago, um, when tech companies were just sort of really going public in a much larger way over the past 10 to 20 years. Um, You saw Google, Facebook IPOs, um, Twitter as well. I would say the markets had more appetite for tech companies, even if they didn't turn a profit right away, just because the idea was, look, if we can spend a lot of money to grow uh, our user base as wide as possible, eventually we can sort of flip the switch and turn the money machine on and and get to a a sense of profitability. Now, the big difference is those were largely internet businesses, whereas Uber makes contact in the real world, and there's many more points of overhead that they have to deal with, like, you know, paying drivers uh, up to 30% of every fare, uh, not to mention, you know, they have a um, a research center for autonomous vehicle research and self-driving cars that's burning up enormous amounts of money. And their food delivery business basically is has them subsidizing each uh, different delivery in every market that they're in. So their continued thesis is you got to spend money to make money, and we are spending a heck of a lot of money. But um, I think we're in a real different time where, where uh, public market investors are, are just valuing top line, uh, this sort of user growth, much less than they are the ability to turn a profit.
0: Well, as we mentioned, Uber has really developed into a, a full-on transportation company. And yeah, of course, you can hail a ride. But this development in Chicago is all about Uber Freight. Tell us a little bit more about that division.
1: One of Uber's lines of business is, is kind of expanding into this sector that hasn't been, you know, what, what they say when they explain it is a lot of uh, freight booking and freight management has is largely still manual, hasn't really been sort of uh, automated or brought online into the digital age which is you know a fair enough point and I think the history of technology is basically moving into different lines of business that haven't really been updated for a long time and and saying here here's a better way to do it and usually that uh, brings about very fast disruption over a short period of time you can see that with just with Uber bringing taxis online essentially but you know they're I'm curious to see how successful they are, if they're spending and sort of subsidizing their growth there, and if they have to sort of fight against these relationships that already exist in the freight management and trucking industry. Uh, how successful they are there, but it's it's sort of a um, it's not exactly a sexy area of of um, growth for them, but it it seems to at least make some sort of sense in terms of um, a place that's been not largely tapped by uh, digital digital markets.
0: You're listening to The Morning Shift, and I'm speaking with Mike Isaac, a technology reporter for The New York Times, who covers Silicon Valley, including Uber. He's got a new book out in just the last week titled Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. And he's putting some local news in a broader context for us, the fact that Uber Freight, the company's trucking division, is adding 2,000 jobs in Chicago. Now, Mike, we know Uber has expanded around the globe. Um, It's in, oh gosh, how many countries? Oh, just over the last 10 years. So how big of a deal is is this move, you know, moving into Chicago? We're talking mm-hmm. about 2,000 jobs. That's nothing to sneeze at. And the company is promising to invest about $2 billion in Chicago over the next 10 years.
1: It is still a relatively small uh, line of business for them right now. I think the revenue is in the hundreds of millions, but still, that's nothing to sneeze at. You know, I mean, like that's that you can still... Make an ample side business there, and they have indicated, at least when I've talked to the company, they've indicated that this is an important area of growth for them. And again, it's not super competitive in terms of other tech companies going after it. You know, they haven't. You haven't seen any indication that Lyft is trying to go into the space, or even abroad like the Ola, uh, Ola Cab, or Didi, these other companies that do transportation. So. I would argue that it's, you know, relatively ripe area for disruption. Again, the the more of the uh, question mark is like, how how are the existing players going to deal? And is this going to be an area of longevity for the company? But, you know, so far, they seem to be going all in on it. So it seems like those jobs are in a good space.
0: I, I want to hold Uber up against another company. Pretty much mm. everybody's familiar with Amazon. Um, mm. Again, this is a company that was not profitable, Uh, In in the beginning, they lost billions. But of course, now look at Amazon, right? And they've moved into selling just about everything. They started off selling books, but now, you know, they're known as the everything store. So Mm. is Uber on a similar, potentially on a a similar track where, you know, say in 10 or 15 years, we might not be talking about them as a ride hailing business at all?
1: Mm, No, I mean, you're exactly right. Like this is, the When they were on their um, what's called a road show in the run-up to their uh, IPO a few months ago, the, one of the biggest uh, selling points for Dara Kajar Shahi, the CEO of the company, is the idea that Uber is a platform, uh, not just a ride hailing company. And that's sort of a tired and trite uh, uh, story in the valley because every in Silicon Valley where I live, which because everyone is just, Wants to convince you that they're more than they are, <laughs> but uh, Uber, from the beginning, you know the the original CEO Travis Kalanick, who was uh, forced out of the company. Uh, his his whole vision for Uber was, we are going to be the mode of transportation for every one and everything on the planet eventually. So where Amazon ships packages and delivers food and all these things, Uber saw itself as that version, but for the entire world and. The advantage they had was this sort of huge labor force they built up on their network. Um, it's still TBD on whether they can make that work. Uh, Dara Khazr-Shahi has scaled back some of the ambitions in some markets. So we'll, we'll kind of see see how successful they are. But that's, that's the story they like to tell. And we'll see if they can actually get there.
0: Well, when it comes to these changes coming to Chicago, a Midwest headquarters for Uber Freight, the promised 2,000 jobs, the promise of, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars in investment. What will you, what will you be watching? What will you be assessing a, as this move plays out?
1: One of the key areas for me is just to see how much they're willing to spend on this arm of the business and how much hiring they want to do, and in which, which markets uh, beyond Chicago, but as well as how much, how important Chicago is uh, for the company. I think it's obviously, you know as far as geography is concerned, a very important location in the country and like sort of a routing hub for a lot of different transportation and trucking industry in particular. I would love to know as the business plays out, if there is as large of a room for growth as the company thinks there is, or, you know, if they need to ultimately sort of turn around and and change the way they treat it.
0: That's Mike Isaac, technology reporter for The New York Times and author of the new book, Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. Mike, thanks for speaking with us.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
0: Last Friday, U.S. Steel reported a second chemical spill at its plant in Portage, Indiana, in less than three weeks. And U.S. Steel isn't the only company in the area reporting spills. In early August, Arcelor Middle Steel Plant dumped ammonium and cyanide into a river that leads into Lake Michigan. So what do these spills mean for the people and the wildlife that depend on the lake and specifically the Portage Lakefront area where these spills are happening? WBEC's Michael Puente covers northwest Indiana. He says everyone involved is still trying to figure out how this is happening.
2: Well, right now, even the company doesn't know what's causing this to happen. Here's two things. We're not sure if this is happening more often or they're just reporting more of it. Anytime something little happens, They got it reported a couple of years ago. They really got slapped on the hand pretty hard when it took them a long time to not only report it to IDEM, which is the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, but then IDEM took a long time to tell public officials about a spill of hexavalent chromium into the uh, Burns uh, Waterway right there by the lakefront, which goes into Lake Michigan. So there's a lot of concern there. So right now, U.S. Steel is deciding that anytime we have something that we don't know or it's an unusual type of discharge, we're going to have to report it out. And, and is it
0: really up to the company to self-report? Or are people observing this happening and then reporting it out?
2: Well, it is a self-report, but it's also part of an agreement that they had to settle this lawsuit that they would notify public officials immediately if something unusual of or abnormal it gets into the water.
0: So tell us about the chemicals that are spilling into Lake Michigan. Give us a sense of how dangerous this is.
2: Well, right now with the oil sheen, we're not sure what's in there. Uh, U.S. still hasn't said exactly what's in there on both discharges, and IDEM hasn't really said what's in there. It could just be oil from one of their mechanisms that is starting to leak, but they're still trying to find out what's in there. Now, with ArcelorMittal, a month ago, it was it was heavy heavy amounts of ammonium and cyanide now they have permits to actually dump these chemicals into the little Calumet river uh, i think it's something like 500 pounds daily of ammonia which seems crazy but the amounts that they were discharging into the little Calumet river because of some malfunction really exceeded that to the amount where you know it killed something like 3000 fish um, and it caused the uh, the Portage Marina to shut down for a little bit and people stopped uh, swimming in that area. So these are very dangerous chemicals. And people right now are, are are, first of all, they're surprised that these chemicals are even allowed to be dumped into any kind of waterway that connects to Lake Michigan, which is our drinking water. But this is an industrial area. Uh, these are jobs that people, you know, make their careers and livings there. So it's always been a double edged sword when you talk industry in Northwest Indiana.
0: Now, Indiana mm-hmm. American Water shut down its Ogden Dunes intake after news of the chemical spills broke Friday. Why mm-hmm. does this matter?
2: Again, it's it's the area's drinking water. Uh, they shut it down, um, and it's right now it hasn't. It's still not online as a, as of right now. I just spoke to them. Yesterday, it wasn't online. They're going to do some more testing. You know, they have to make sure that what people are drinking and using for for food, uh, food preparation, that it's it's safe and reliable. So they have to shut it down. This is the second time they've had to do this. Uh, They still have another intake near Gary, Indiana. But if that one goes down, you're talking about thousands and thousands of people who are going to be left without any kind of water.
0: I want to turn back to the Middle spill, which was not reported to the public until hundreds of dead fish began floating past boaters. Were they
2: complying with the law? Well, right now, ArcelorMetal said they didn't know that they were having these discharges. Under their permit, they have 24 hours in which they have to tell the state of Indiana what's going on. They'll contend we didn't know for three days. Now, you know, it could still come out that maybe they knew earlier than later, but we don't know that right now. But under their permit, they have 24 hours. Uh, under that, it doesn't seem like they complied, but at the same time, they, they'll say we just didn't know. So more of that still has to come out. So
0: dead fish floating in the water. Talk about the short-term and possible long-term impacts these chemical spills are having on Lake Michigan and its wildlife?
2: Well, short-term impact, you know, it's definitely impacting tourism in, in Portage because they have this beautiful lakefront that they want people to go and swim and fish. And it's, you know, for for a good, you know, uh, two, one or two-week period, people weren't allowed to fish in there because they're concerned now. People also consume some of the fish they were catching. There has been a number of attorneys who have been talking to, quote-unquote, maybe victims who maybe have gotten sick from eating fish that they... You know, they, they got out of the, the river around that time. The long-term impact is that, you know, again, this is the area's drinking water. They're concerned about this. How many of these discharges are going to be happening? You know, one environmentalist that I spoke to says they were they were concerned that if it wasn't for the fish dying, maybe they wouldn't have found out that, larger amounts of cyanide and ammonia was actually getting into the river. So that fish kill was, you know, obvious a, a big red flag as to what's going on here. How are public officials responding? Well, they're responding in that uh, early on, especially the mayor of uh, Portage, John Cannon, he really wanted to press the industries, especially ArcelorMittal and IDEM, to let the public officials find out as soon as possible. The public needs to know because they need to know whether they can fish, swim, have activities in that river or in the lake. But they're concerned like anybody else. Uh, this is their drinking water. It, it could have an impact on Lake Michigan. I just spoke to yesterday the uh, a member of the Portage City Council, Sue Lynch, about this situation, This is what she had to say.
1: Not just a body of water. It's a fresh body
0: of water, which is, you know, there aren't that many left in the world. And also, there's a lot of activity that goes on in the water. We have uh, boaters that use it. We have people that um, are in that water a lot.
2: That's uh, Portage City Councilwoman Sue Lynch. According to the Tribune,
0: ArcelorMittal has violated the Clean Water Act during five of the past 12 quarters. And U.S. Steel recently settled a federal lawsuit over its repeated spills of toxic chemicals into Lake Michigan, which led them to have to take some reporting Mm -hmm. um, actions. But what kind of incentive is there for these companies to comply with environmental laws?
2: Well, I got to tell you, Jen, actually the big incentive with the U.S. Steel uh, settlement and lawsuit was because of the city of Chicago under former Mayor Rahman Manny who put a lot of pressure on U.S. Steel to stop this dumping. Um, he was really concerned about that. Right now, uh, the new mayor hasn't really said too much about this, but you know she's well aware of what's going on. But right now, it's just public pressure being put on the uh, on the companies to not only inform the public but get behind of what's causing all these discharges. Right now, you know I've talked to some people in the past. History has shown us that a lot of these companies will just pay the fine and continue on uh, without much penalty or much uh, anything that really harms the actual company.
0: How much awareness do you think there is in the general public about these spills and possibly uh, the, the the way it could compromise drinking water?
2: You know, Jen, it's a good question because uh, in, in, in just in reporting this out over the last month, I talked to a number of people, including, again, the mayor of Portage who was astonished that not only the amount of chemicals that were being discharged into the Little Calumet River or Burns Ditch, but the types, ammonia and cyanide, when you hear those, you think, oh, my God, you know, how can this be going into our rivers? He was unaware of that. He also made the comparison that in their own water filtration system. The water has to go out cleaner than they when they got in. He says if we had anything like that going out, we would be fine. We would be investigated by the state of Indiana. But the industries, which, you know, have a kind of a cozy relationship with places like the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, you know, they seem to kind of skirt and get to do what they want. So as you're watching mm-hmm. this story, what will you be watching for? What comes next? What comes next to see if there's going to be, additional discharges. What's in these chemicals? What's in this oily discharge that right now U.S. uh, U.S. still says it is not hexavalent chromium, so you don't have to worry about that. But still, in some of these oily discharges, you know, there has to be something in there. And also seeing what the Indiana Department of Environmental Management does with this. Right now, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is letting IDEM handle all of this. That's WBEZ's Michael Puente. Mike, thanks. Thank you, Jim.
0: And that's it for today's Morning Shift. More important conversations about Chicagoland are coming your way tomorrow, so make sure you're subscribed or tell your smart speaker to play the Morning Shift podcast. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.